God is good all the time. One more time, God is good all the time. Amen. So we are continuing in our eight-week series in the Beatitudes of Jesus Christ. We're on the third. Before I get into that, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite movies, if you can hit the next slide, uh, Star Wars. And this is like the original, you know, trilogy, part of the original trilogy, not the ones that are, you know, more current and modern, but the ones that came out in the 80s that went to the theater for and, you know, 70s and 80s. That's right. But I, I remember um, this particular scene is one of my favorite scenes um, because um, there's a lot of gospel kind of message in this scene. And this is the scene where Obi-Wan Kenobi is fighting Darth Vader. And, uh, and as they're fighting, there's all this tension mounting and there's stress and on the side, Luke and his friends are also fighting stormtroopers and making their way um, through the ship. And Obi-Wan looks and sees Luke. And you can see in his, in his head something shifts, um, like his mission and his calling. And there's a shift there. And there's this understanding that Obi-Wan has that he will be more powerful and more effective after, after his death than in his life, right? And so you see this relinquishment happen in Obi-Wan, this moment of relinquishment, and then he lifts his sword and just kind of gives himself up. And Darth Vader takes the advantage, oh, and Obi-Wan, you know, his clothing just drops, right? It's, there's no body anymore. He just kind of, the clothing drops to the ground. And um, it's a powerful scene because... Um, in the midst of the fight, in the midst of this battle between light, the good, you know, the light side of the force and the dark side of the force, there's this struggle, and yet it, the light side of the force, there's kind of this understanding that, you know, self-control and peace and goodness and love and compassion and meekness are actually what fuels the light side of the force, whereas the dark side of the force is about anger, right, and aggression, and hatred, and darkness. And so we see a bit of what it means to live a cruciform life, right, in this scene, almost like a Messiah figure giving up his life for the sake of others, so that others can be empowered, so that others can flourish, so that others can be lifted up, Obi-Wan gives of his life, and he's actually made more powerful. You see this theme in Lord of the Rings, right, with Gandalf, all, all these kind of things, uh, motifs happening. But we are in the beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And uh, we, we actually had a, have a Bible study going on the beatitudes, and we went through this um, a couple Thursdays ago, and it was really convicting for me. <laughs> I don't know why. I was just sitting there, this, ah. Oh. I was thinking about Seattle traffic and my driving and how impatient I get when I drive or uh, different things and how, man, do I, do I have the quality of meekness when I'm driving? There's a reason I don't have a 
Christian cross, you know, fish on the back of my car. There's a reason that I don't put Renew Covenant Church on my bumper. It's like pastor of Renew because when people watch me drive or get cut off by me or, you know, there's like road rage happening, I don't want them to know I'm a Christian. I don't want them to know, you know, that I'm driving the car, that the pastor of a church is driving the car because there's something that's like uh, irritating about Seattle drivers. And I think there have been articles that recently come out, came out that, like, Seattle drivers or Puget Sound drivers think they're the best drivers, better than, they're, like, number one in terms of thinking that they're better drivers than everyone else, but they're actually, in reality, according to other cities, the worst drivers. Amen. So, <laughs> amen to that. Um, anyways, I won't go into that rant, um, but meekness um, is a very difficult um, thing for me, um, because, you know, there's always something inside me that says, if I, if I am gentle, or if I'm humble, or if I yield, right, then I'm going to lose position, or I'm going to be overlooked, or someone's going to go ahead of me, or I'm not going to get what I want, or I'm not going to be able to provide for my family, or that's not what leadership looks like. That's not what a pastor should be, right? Leadership is the person who speaks first. It speaks the most loudly, right? The person who's up there and assertive and coming and making his point. Um, I remember uh, the year after I graduated from undergrad, I was uh, in an internship year, an apprentice program with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at the University of Washington, and we had a group um, almost like the MTV, the Christian version of MTV's Real World. Like, get these interns from all over different schools, put them in one campus, and then do, sit down and do some character and sins of the father, sins of you know, you know, family patterns, you know, kind of counseling stuff, and then also do some leadership development. See what happens. And usually, it was just like a disaster. We're all living in community. I think I used metal on someone's Teflon pan, and she got really mad on me. I was like, what's wrong with that, right? <laughs> but anyways, I remember the leader, you know, Al would, uh, one time he was like, oh, let's, let's take a break this Friday. Let's go to the movies. And, and we were sitting there trying to decide, and, and finally he said, someone just decide for us. Someone just take some leadership, step up. And I tell you, there is a newspaper there, and three people just grabbed it and like, I'll do it, I'll, I'll do it. And the paper actually tore. And I, you know, I kind of sat in the background, um, you know, being the like false, humble Asian American, like, I'm not going to play that game, right? Look at them, like, they're so overt in their like desire to be aggressive and like, that's so American, right? I'm not, you know, I'm cooler. Right? I'm cooler, I'm not going to like be overtly competitive and stuff like that. But the fact of the matter was, it irritated me. And it has irritated me in my leader, kind of in the formation of being a minister and the development of my gifts and becoming a leader. Like, man, why does, it, why does leadership always mean that I have to be aggressive in some way or I have to like to horn like that goes against everything in my nature that goes against the ways that I was brought up at home that goes against the ways that I believe that leadership should be called out by 
the leader, right? Instead of leadership is determined by who speaks up or who jumps up or who's the loudest. Are you with me, church? Meekness. I struggle with that. Even if I'm quiet, if I'm not overt or quiet, uh, I'm quiet about it, doesn't mean I don't struggle with it internally. Doesn't mean that I'm not competitive. Another, another case, case in point, you know, growing up, you know, I, I wasn't the tallest guy in high school, but I wanted to show that I was tough. So I joined the football team, and I was known for being like the crazy hitter, right? Just, I was probably, you know, a buck 20 during football season, 120 pounds, 5'3", um, 120 pounds, and I would just fly at linemen and just like try to hit them, and coaches would go crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was also a part of this like, this competitive drive, like I will not be weak, I will not, I will be tough, I will show the world that I'm strong and competent and able, and that size doesn't matter. It's not the size of the dog, right? It's the size of the fight in the dog, right? And hitting hard was kind of like. My thing, and in all sports, I approached everything with this intensity. So when I ran track, people were like, your face is so like, right? When you run, um, when you wrestle, you're so like hyped up and tense. And, um, you know, a lot of counseling, years of counseling later, I think God has been teaching me that it's, it's okay right? I love you. You are who you are. You're my beloved. And you don't make things happen, really. What you have in your life is our gifts. And ministry and leadership, it's not something you grab for and get or manipulate or to control. These are all privileges. These are all gifts, right? And learning to be a pastor has been a huge part of that. Like, what does it mean to be a pastor? Does it mean this or this or looking like this or dressing like this or speaking like this, you know, or talking like this? No, it's a gift from God, right? It's a gift, it's a gift of service. And so um, that's kind of insight into my journey. But I also wanted to shift gears and look at World history, my son is a world history buff, but if you hit the next slide, how many of you heard of the Doctrine of Discovery? Raise your hand. Doctrine of Discovery? No? Well, the Doctrine of Discovery was invoked by Pope Alexander VI, issued in a papal bull in 1493. So when you hear 1493, it's like, oh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in what? 1492. So around the age of discovery. But around that time... Um, the Pope issued this papal bull. And basically what was decreed in the papal bull was, its aim was to justify that Christian European explorers' claims on any land and waterways that they discovered uh, were theirs. They could claim it as theirs. So if 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 an explorer... You know, came to America, found some land, and landed on it. They could plant their flag. And I claim this for the king of England, right? It would belong to England. Whatever you discovered, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christianity, 
Um, it was used to promote Christian domination and superiority um, and was applied in Africa, Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and the America. This doctrine of discovery just gave spiritual, political, and legal justification for basically colonization. But this ideology supported <laughs> the dehumanization of those living on the land and their dispossession, murdered, and forced assimilation. The doctrine fueled white supremacy insofar as white European settlers claimed they were instruments of divine design and possessed cultural superiority. But that was, 14, that was the 1400s, right? But the doctrine of discovery actually influenced the Americas in the 1800s. If you've heard of the Monroe Doctrine, which, uh, was declared, in the, uh, which declared U.S. sovereignty um, basically over, all, over the Western Hemisphere um, and inspired Manifest Destiny, which justified American expansion westward and propagated um, the belief that the U.S. was destined to control all land from the Atlantic to the Pacific and beyond. Um, and actually, the doctrine of discovery became a part of U.S. federal law and was used to dispossess native peoples of their land. Um, Chief Justice John Marshall writes uh, in a unanimous decision of the Supreme Court that the principle of discovery gave European nations an absolute right to new world lands and native peoples certain rights of occupancy. So basically, the doctrine of discovery says, in the name of God, whatever lands that white Christians discover or claim. So, doctrine of discovery. And when I think about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount in general, the Beatitudes is actually is all about Jesus talking about the upside-down kingdom of heaven. Amen? And here in ours, in, in the fifth verse, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth right? There is a complete reversal of what's been happening in world history, what's been happening in colonization. Like, when we talk about the earth, our history tells us that we are constantly fighting for land. We are constantly getting more land. If you play Settlers of Catan, right? And you switch the S and the C in settlers, it's the Cattlers of Satan, right? <laughs> We're Cattlers of Satan, right? It's all about getting land, grabbing land, possessing land, taking land, and kicking, kicking others. There are people there before us. So how do you justify that? This is how we justify it. And that's the opposite of meekness. The world says, blessed are the strong, blessed are the conquerors. Blessed are those who are Christian and European, for they get the land, right? That's what the doctrine of discovery told us. But what Jesus says is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. What does meek mean? Meek means gentle, kind, patient, soft-spoken. Meek means laying oneself down for the sake of others, so that others can succeed, so that others can be empowered, so that others can flourish. Meekness means a radical submission to the will of God, 
a radical submission to God's purposes, not to your own self-interest, not to your own agenda, not to your own purposes. Amen? And what does the word inherit? For they will inherit the earth means. When you think of inherit, someone is gifted something by someone else who passes away maybe. There's a will written. There's, uh, you know, uh, people go around a lawyer who reads the will um, and someone and the estate is figured out, the estate of a person who passes away. And this person is gifted something by someone else because of that person's relationship with the departed person, right? Inheritance. Inheritance is based on who you are, not what you do, right? I recently saw the movie's Knives Out. Anyone see the movie Knives Out? That is like a classic example of a family fighting and striving to grab for what they feel was their right, right? The patriarch, the father of the family is murdered, and it's kind of like a, almost like Clue, like a what do you call it? Murder mystery. Um, someone murders the father, and they're all trying to grab, figure one, figure out who was, you know, who killed the father. But also, you hear all these backstories of people grabbing for the inheritance, wanting to get theirs, making sure and ensuring that they would get their inheritance. But you don't grab for an inheritance, right? It's bestowed upon you. It's a gift. It comes out of your identity. And I think that's really important that it's there. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. You don't have to grab. You don't have to fight. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to manipulate. You don't have to exploit. You don't have to kill. Be gentle. Be kind. Be patient. Lay yourself down for the sake of others. Be a part of the radical submission to the will and purpose of God. And then you will inherit the earth. It'll be just given to you. Are you with me, church? Amen. In the upside down kingdom of the heaven, we don't grab or reach or force our way into hashtag blessings, into riches, into happiness, into the good life. But citizens of the kingdom know our blessings and our riches and our happiness, our salvation, our rescue, our redemption, our restoration, our renewal, our joy, our love, our acceptance, our belonging, our inheritance. The earth comes from Yahweh. We know that. When you know that life is a gift and not a right, then you live differently. Amen? You wear different clothes. You smell different. You have the odor of the kingdom all over you. (sighs) When you know that life is a gift and inheritance and not a right, you treat people better. You do not use and manipulate or exploit. When life is a gift and an inheritance, there is space in your life to extend mercy and grace and compassion to walk the extra mile Now we're talking Sermon on the Mount, right? To walk the extra mile, to turn the other cheek, forgive and forgive and forgive, to not murder people in your heart, to let your word be your word, your yes be your yes, and your no be your no, to love your enemies and pray for those who even hate you, 
It's so hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to do. So hard not to push our way in. So hard not to push back in a world where predators and liars and abusers seem to win, seem to win the earth. Lord, have mercy. See your people come and rescue quickly. And I, as a young leader, as a young pastor, I look to other leaders around me, right? For an example, a good model of this. I look to my congressmen and my senators and my presidents and all the leaders around me, right? What does it look like to be meek, right? What does it look like to lay oneself down for the flourishing of the others? What does it look like to want the goodness, goodness and flourishing for the whole, right? And it just, you don't find it anywhere. You don't find it. And I'm angry. I'm angry when I watch the news because my children, because of my children, who do they look for when they want to learn integrity? Who do they look to when they want to say, oh, this is what fair government and fair ruling looks like? Who do they look to? They don't, you can't. They have to look to us, your, your parents. And we need to look to the church and the village that is the church, amen? For models of good women and men who are meek. And meek, mind you, meek doesn't mean weak, right? I'm like, oh, this is the best part of the sermon. Like, phew, I don't have to be weak, right? Meek rhymes with meek. Meek rhymes with weak, but it doesn't mean weak, right? There's a consciousness about meekness. There's a, what do you call it? Intentionality in meekness that we choose. One chooses to lay down. One chooses kindness and gentleness. One chooses not to be violent. When you could, you might, right? Everything says revenge, payback. Don't call it a comeback. Mama said knock you out. That's the 80s for you 80s rap fans. Um, but meekness is a choice, a way of life, and the part of the upside down kingdom culture that Jesus is speaking of here. Meekness is not about passivity and weakness. It's not a fatalistic life philosophy. Just let things be, just roll over and accept but rather it is powerful resistance. It is the heart of revolution. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is speaking the manifesto of Christian discipleship. Not that the people of God, not that his followers would be flavorless and dull. Not that God's people would be squelched fires and ineffective non-influencers in the world. Heavens, no. But that we would be salt and light. More Sermon on the Mount, right? Salt and light. We would be salty people will taste, we will be salty and people will taste us and wince when they taste us. Like when you taste two salty things. We will pour ourselves on wounds and they would smart with the stinging 
and yet healing and cleansing would happen. We would shine bright, blazing hot flyers, piercing lights bringing truth and justice and prophetic confrontation into the world. Our lights shine like sunlight at an overturned stone and the bugs and creepy crawly things and the worms scatter and squirm because it's truth, truth, truth shining light on them. Meekness is strength under control for the sake of others, for the sake of love. Meekness is laying oneself down to bring peace and flourishing and shalom to the community. But meekness has to focus um, meekness has to focus on truth and justice and the beloved community. Man, this weekend, our nation remembers Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., MLK. Um, he believed in nonviolence. He believed in that Gandhi's method in India of nonviolence plus working through Christian love was the most powerful weapon for the oppressed and the struggle for freedom. And I wanted to read um, some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s quotes about nonviolence. So I believe nonviolence is, um, is meekness. And later we'll talk about the peacemakers, um, but it is a part of um, what it means to be revolutionary kingdom people. In fact, it's, we'll get to this later, but here are some quotes. In spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. We adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community at peace with itself. We will try to persuade with our words, but if our words fail, we will try to persuade with our acts. Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence, when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition and if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. Nonviolence is a powerful and just weapon which cuts without wounding and ennobles the man who wields it. It is a sword that heals. Nonviolence is absolute commitment to the way of love. Love is not emotional, is not emotional bash. It is not empty sentimentalism. It outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. World peace through nonviolent matter means is neither absurd nor unattainable. All other methods have failed. Thus, we must begin anew. Nonviolence is a good starting point. I refuse to accept the view that man mankind is tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become a reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion 
while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. I am convinced that even violent temperaments can be channeled through nonviolent discipline if they can act constructively and express through an effective channel their very legitimate anger. And finally, um, there's a quote. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we will continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much moral obligation as cooperation with good. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight and beat us and leave us half dead, and we shall still love you. But be self-assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves, we shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. We'll listen to the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, if you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then finally, in Matthew, later on in Matthew, on the evening of Jesus' betrayal, a disciple of his cut the ear off a Pharisee. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, this is, do what you came for, friend. This is when Judas, the one who betrays him, kisses him. Um, in order to signal his arrest. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword. Pastor Dave said, reached for his sword, (laughs) drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit their earth. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your words. May your words uh, be seeds planted in our heart and your spirit blow a fresh wind and grow that seed 
um, and do something new in our hearts. Let your words not be uh, ordinances and regulations that uh, just make us more overwhelmed and depressed, uh, our lack and our failures, but may your words be inspiring and truly powerful words of transformation. As we go from this place, may we be people who are meek. May we lay our lives down, um, not in weakness, not in some false humility, but may we lay our lives down um, for the sake of your revolution, for the sake of resistance, for the sake of pushing back on a world full of hate and greed. May we be salt and light and offer an alternative, a witness um, to you. And that may we as a shalom community, as your beloved community, in the ways that we are united in our differences, in the ways that we are reconciled, be a witness um, to people around us that indeed you are the one who tears down barriers. You are the one who gives good, good gifts. And every good and perfect gift comes from you. And we are all called your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen.